uh, rumblings and whatnot. That's the noisy nook back there. By the way, this side of the church, there are people back there. You may not realize it, but they're, they're back there. So come over and visit us sometime. Well, it, it's a privilege to be with you guys and uh, get the opportunity to open up God's Word with and for you. Um, the last couple times that I've been up front to preach, I've been walking through a series on conflict and just looking at various scriptures, sort of unpacking those and, and what they tell us about the nature of conflict and how we are to resolve it, that we're, we're called to do this. Um, the first time we did this, I, I posited to you all that we as Christians of all people should be excellent at dealing with interpersonal conflict. And that is because the nature of the gospel, the core message that we teach and remind each other and believe in all of this, is a message of a conflict that was resolved. That you and I were at war with God and that through the blood of Jesus, he has ended that enmity and restored us to relationship with him. And therefore, we as of all people should be excellent at dealing with and resolving, even forgiving in the context of interpersonal conflict, and yet it doesn't take long to look at the history of the church or uh, even our church and to say, hey, there are, there are points and places where we have failed to do that. We may even be able to look at our own lives and do that, and so we have been looking at this when I've been up here. And what I want to do this morning is kind of take a step back. The last two times I, I, as I taught we were looking at what do you do when you're in the middle of a conflict, that, that somebody has sinned against somebody else and we're, we're in the midst of it. And I want to rewind a little bit this morning and, and talk about something that the Lord has given us and called us to that actually sort of sets the stage for making that whole process a whole lot easier. And that thing that God has given us is, is a gift. He has given us a gifting, every one of us, and he has called on us to exercise that gift just like we exercise a muscle. So I, I want to start off by asking this question, have you ever received a truly great gift? You know, one that, that demonstrated it and struck all the notes of care and, and thoughtfulness and, you know, sort of a knowledge of you. A gift like that can have a profound impact on us, can't it? That, that it can really transform the nature of the relationship we have with, with the giver. It is interesting then that God calls our talents and our predispositions to sort of throw ourselves into certain things. He calls those things giftings or gifts. And that word works in two ways in regard to these things. In one way, these things are gifts because they come from our loving Heavenly Father who bestows them on us. It's a gift. But it is also a gift in that it is meant to be given. It is something that we give to others, namely that we give it back to the church, that we use those talents, those predispositions, all of that to bless and to build the local body, expression of the body of Christ. So, I'm leading to something here. What is the gift that we have, every one of us, and can give all those notes of care, thoughtfulness, etc. What is the gift, the greatest gift that we can exercise in the context of the local church? Well, that's what we're going to talk about this morning. And in fact, the Apostle Paul answers that question. He asks that question and answers that question for us in 1 Corinthians. 
He answers that question for a church that was thick in the throes of doing all the opposite things rather than being caring and thoughtful and etc. There was selfishness and tribalism, backbiting, and all manner of evil going on in the Corinthian church. And in chapters 11 to 14, he, he specifically narrows in on how even their gathering with one another had devolved into an absolute disaster. Such that in 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen he says this, but in the following instruction, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. That their gathering together in church actually all made them worse people. And so he proceeds to offer correction, starting in the way that they do communion in chapter 11. And, and in chapter 12, he begins to correct the way that they view gifting among the members of the church. See, they were missing that God had given them the various giftings by his Holy Spirit. And the, these various members with these various giftings, they needed one another. The eye, he says, cannot reject the hand saying, I don't need you. And even the parts that require more delicate care get that care and honor. Such that the weaker parts of the body, he says, are indispensable. They're indispensable. Their church needed the strong and really, really, really gifted people and the capable members. And it needed the weaker members. Because this is how God designed the body to work, and that applies to us still today. Thus, he concludes, the way that they were to view their relationship within the local church and the way we are still to view it within the local church is that if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. In other words, if it happens to you, it happens to me. If it happens to me, it happens to you because we are one body. So he concludes in 1 Corinthians 12, 27 to 31. Now, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles and second prophets, third teachers, and then miracles, then gifts of healing and helping, administrating in various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do, do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly, listen to this, earnestly desire the higher gifts. What Paul does is he... he he exposes that there is this diversity in giftings, and it sort of runs the gamut of needs in the church. But I don't know if you notice what he's doing here. He's actually placing a hierarchy on the giftings, on the gifts. And he starts with the apostles that God first gave the apostles. Those were the ones that transmitted the very words of God to us, preserved in our scriptures here. And then cascading down from there, descending an import from there. And the implication here is that just as the stronger members of the church need the weaker members of the church, so the variety of giftings need each other to accomplish the whole task of the church. But in verse 31, he calls on us to actually desire the higher gifts. It's actually a very good thing to desire to become a teacher of God's word. 
So at all those things, apostles, prophets, teachers, do you hear that? It's all this proclamation of the, the word of God. So friends, it is a good thing to desire to be able to teach the word of God, to know it well enough, to be able to articulate it, all of those things. While helping, administrating, administering, physical healing and aid, they're all obviously valuable and necessary to the church. He says that being able to articulate God's word to the people is a higher gift. So desire it. That's what he's telling these church. But what he does right at the end of chapter 12 is he entices them a little bit. Look at what he says, chapter 12, end of verse 31. He says, I will show you a more, a still more excellent way. Now, you got to understand what he's doing here. You almost get the sense that Paul is sort of leading them on here. He's egging them on. See, this church already presumably put a very high value on teachers. They were dividing themselves into camps based on who their favorite teacher is. In 1 Corinthians 3, 4, it says, For one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos. It says you're just being merely human when you do this. But see, they were dividing over these favorite teachers. And actually, it carries on in, the, in 2 Corinthians the companion letter here, the sequel, the occasion for writing that was largely because at that point, the Corinthian church was paying false teachers to teach them because they spoke real good and they charged a lot of money. See, these people put a high value on good rhetoric. And so Paul says, desire those higher gifts. That's good. Long to be able to teach and articulate the word of God in a helpful way. But I'm going to show you something better than that. (gasps) What could be better than that? Well, let me tell you. But first, we're going to pray. God, as we get into your word here, we ask that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Would you challenge us where we need to be challenged by this and encourage us where we need to be encouraged, God? I do pray that your words would sink deep into our heart, God, as the reality of living in the community of the body of Christ is that we are saved and redeemed and growing people, but we are imperfect people. And that we will butt up against each other, we will sin against each other and fail from time to time. And so we need what you have given us to endure through those hardships. God, and so I pray that this morning as we look at this chapter in the scripture, would you move in us? And would, this, would these words, God, actually be sort of a guardian for us, something that protects us as we continue to grow as a body together? We ask this for your glory, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you guys are the note-taking type, we're going to do three points this morning because, you know, Trinity, three, it's great. Good. We're going to do three. So uh, first is this. We're going to talk about how love is essential to the church. Second, we are going to talk about how love is active in the church. And finally, we are going to talk about how love is eternal for the church. So love is essential to the church is where we're going to start. Let me read 1 Corinthians chapter 13. By the way, as I read this, this is not a wedding. How many times have you guys heard this taught at a wedding? And sure, there's an application for a marriage, absolutely, but do not forget the context I just spent all that time explaining to you guys. This is in the context of a conflicting 
tempestuous church. So listen to the words of the Apostle Paul, who is going to show us a still more excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and I, if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Friends, love is essential to the church. Let me show you a, more, a still more excellent way. Let me show you the thing that trumps all those other gifts. It is this. It is love. This is the greatest gift that we can give. Now listen, what if you have all those higher gifts, these teachings and this faith and all of this, but you don't have love? Corinthians, the thing that you value so highly, the ability to articulate in the tongues of men and even angels, I don't even know what that means. But he says, imagine if you could reach up to the heavens and speak in the tongues of angels, but there's no love attached to that. He says, you are just making noise. Now, I've really thought about bringing a kitchen pot and a spoon and just going to town on that thing. But you can hear the illustration And I chose not to do that because you know the sound of that is painful. That it is painful. It is devoid of melody and musical quality, an instrument played wrongly. Friends, we may desire these higher gifts, but look, you could say all the right words and communicate all these truths, but if there's no love, it is just noise. But but look what else he says in verse 2. You may have these prophetic powers, having this wisdom and insight into the deep things of the Lord. Heck, you may even have faith so as to remove mountains, but if there's not love accompanying that, then you, me, I am nothing. Or even your your gifting may be that of generosity so that you readily share of your possessions all the way to giving your own life up to the fire to be burned. But see, if that generosity, that giving of your own self is without love, then he says there is no reward for it. The Lord does not credit it to your account. Friends, we may attend this church regularly. That's sort of the bottom rung, right? That's, That's kind of minimum here. We may attend this church regularly, but if there's no love for the other members of this church, then that attendance is valueless. We may serve in a variety of ways in the church, fulfilling different roles and utilizing different gifts that God has given us. But if there is no love for the people of Christ in it, then, friend, it is worthless. If you are preparing or go into missionary service or full-time ministry, but there is no love for the people of God in it, then you are nothing. If you fly across the world and adopt a pile of kids and yet you don't have love, you are nothing. Is the point clear yet? See, without a love for God that overflows into a genuine love for the people of God, then the actions that we do are worthless. Here is the implication. 
If you want to talk about giftings or you want to consider your gifting to the local church and how you can serve and what you can do and, and the things that God has given you, then consider what Paul is telling us. The greatest gift that you can give is this, love the people of God. Member of Berean Bible Fellowship Church, do you love these people? Do you love these people? Or do you merely attend with these people? Do you merely do activities in proximity to these people? Person or family considering membership with us, as you consider that possibility of throwing in your lot with us here, consider this. You need to know that this is what we are about here. Is that as Paul Tripp said, we are not content to be co-conspirators of casual relationships. Because we understand that true discipleship, the training up of followers of Jesus Christ, will include at its foundation a love for God that overflows into a love for his people, the people that Jesus loved and gave himself up for. Friends, love is essential to the church. That's how Paul opens this. Now, the second thing that, that Paul is going to do here is he's going to tell us that love is active in the church. If you notice in verse 4, as he moves along, he starts this description, this very famous description that I'm sure many, maybe most of you are familiar with. He begins with the word love is. He's defining it for us. Now, friends, before we even get into it, we, we've got to pause and think about this because we live in a cultural moment where you can walk into a Target and there is a guy wearing a red shirt that says, love is love, and no one bats an eye at how brazen a declaration this is, that we know what they mean by that. But do we reckon what is actually being declared? See, a statement like love is love, it sounds self-evident, of course love is love, but it's actually a statement of self-determination. It means anything I define as love, well, is love. In other words, me, myself, and I define the word, the emotion, and the action. Love is love is what the Bible calls being wise in your own eyes and leaning, not on your own under, or leaning on your own understanding. See, you and I are not the arbiters and determiners of reality. We do not determine truth, and there is no such thing as our truth. Rather, Jesus Christ himself declares that he is the way, the truth, and the life. Therefore, as we consider the essential nature of love, the, we've got to wrestle with the fact that we don't get to determine it on our terms. We don't get to define it in any way that we want to. Rather, God, through the Apostle Paul here, gives us the picture love is he'll tell us what it looks like now paul's definition is not a textbook definition per se but rather a demonstration of the fruit of love now i i became a christian right around 2000 there's a lot of campy christian music around that time those of my friends in the room who are about my age, maybe you could say amen. There was an old campy DC Talk song called, you remember DC Talk? Good gravy. Okay, it was called Love is a Verb. 
And, and it was sort of a bucking against the idea that you could, quote-unquote, fall out of love as if, though, you were a victim to the whims of this thing that you could be in and out of. Uh, yeah, love is a verb, but it's also an affection. Can't fall off the horse on either side. Love, see, love is an affectionate disposition that leads to action. Like faith, love is evidenced in what we do, and, and without the evidence, the disposition is doubtful. So love is, and Paul launches into this definition. Okay, now, have I enticed you enough? We haven't read it yet, right? <sighs> Let me ask the question. I got to ask this question before we get into it. Okay, have you ever read these lists in the Scripture? They're called vice or virtue lists, where the Apostle Paul strings together a number of things. Here's my question. How in the world do you preach these? Like, any one of these things that we're about to read, I could preach a sermon on. I'm not going to, but we could be here all day if we wanted to describe these. And Any one of these things is worth exploring and explaining and all of that. We could do this. But here's the reality. Paul did not explain and elaborate on these things. He rattled them off. And so there's something to be sort of experienced and understood that he expected the list as a sum, not just the individual items to have an effect on you. So I think, friends, the best thing that I can do for you right now is to read this and let you consider for a second. How must you, individual member of Berean Bible Fellowship, grow in loving the members of this local expression of the body of Christ? Now I'll read it to you. Listen to the list. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or, or resentful, or as other translations render that, it does not keep a record of wrongs. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but it rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things. It hopes all things, and it endures all things. Friend, as you hear that list, where does the Spirit prick you? Where must you grow and where can you grow? Understanding that as you do and as you embrace and as you step into that, that is the best gift that you could give to the church. It is the still more excellent way. Now, I'm not just going to skip over this. I think let me focus in because I got a moment with you. Let me focus in on one part of this. It's perhaps the part I don't know about you guys, but, but whenever I've heard this preached, verse 7 typically kind of gets the, the last little bits of energy. Maybe by the time they get through the list, it's sort of tired and they don't want to give all that energy to it. So I want to focus on verse 7. Consider these four things. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Let me walk you through these quickly. Consider the first, love bears all things. The, the Greek word, therefore, bears could be literally translated that love covers all things. It covers over all things. As in it covers over all offenses. Now, not in sort of a conspiratorial, sinister manner, but rather in the sense of not broadcasting another person's wrongdoings. 
In other words, it's right to translate this bearing with other people because it's the opposite of canceling them or, or retaliating against them, disregarding and withdrawing from them, or shaming them publicly. See, love overlooks the offense. Perhaps a similar word to describe what Paul is talking about here is that love is long-suffering. It's an older word. Love is long-suffering. Love will suffer. <laughs> love will suffer other people for a long time. Friends, are you quick to cut people out because of an offense? Are you quick to withdraw when somebody has wronged you? Do you recall, for those of you who are around, do you recall when we talked about conflict? See, it's our responsibility to initiate reconciliation whether we are the one who did the wrong or the one who has been wronged. We do this like Matthew 18 says, when we have been wronged, you go, you initiate the reconciliation by telling the other person their fault. In an effort, an offer to restore and extend forgiveness. So that's long-suffering. That is love bearing all things. Now, friends, we can only do this if we have a deep understanding that this is the type of love that God has for us, that he is long-suffering in his love for us, that he is born with our weaknesses and our failings for a very long time, and he will continue to do so, and he continues to extend grace. So, friends, understand the more excellent way is to be the one who extends this kind of love to our brothers and sisters who bears with wrongdoing for a long time. Love bears all things. Second, consider this, love believes all things. Now, I think out of any of the parts of this description in 1 Corinthians 13, this is probably the one that I have been most confused about the longest time. I can tell you one thing certainly it does not mean is that love is gullible. That's not what this means. That love just shuts its brain off and, uh, and, and just believes everything. Love is not naive about people or the nature of people. In fact, the Bible tells us that we have to speak the truth in love, which sometimes means correcting each other in all of this. So we know. We know about people. And see, I don't think that this just means that love assumes the best about people, although you know, giving people the benefit of the doubt and a charitable interpretation is certainly a loving thing to do. Well, what is it that we are called, typically in the Scripture, to believe? It's the Word of God. It's everything that God has told us. So I think what Paul is telling us is that love believes everything that God has said and brings that to bear into our relationships one with another. We bring a commitment to trust in the Lord with all our heart and lean not on our own understanding. In other words, we listen to God and not ourselves into our interactions with others. Imagine what good it would do to us if I would call to mind, particularly when there's conflict or tension, that I would actually bring to mind that this person across from me is chosen by God, that they are an adopted son or daughter of God who has been redeemed and bought by the blood of Christ, who has been forgiven and is guaranteed the same inheritance as me because they are sealed with the Holy Spirit. Do you think if I brought that to mind and thought about that in the midst of conflict, that might change the nature of it? I think so. 
or, or I believe, I choose to take God at his word that he is and will be at work in them and that he loves them even when I am struggling to. Or that I believe, I choose to believe that he died for this person even when I might have a hard time living with them. Friends, we believe and we take God at his word that we already have the unity of the Spirit. It is not something we have to build, but it has already been given to us. This is Ephesians 4. That is not something we have to attain, but rather we are called to maintain the thing that he has already given us. And so when conflict and tension rise, we fight with all that we have against the flesh and against our sin to maintain what God has already given us because we are already one body. Imagine how those realities might reframe the way we think about and interact with each other, particularly when it comes to conflict with each other or when there's sin or disruption. See, the more excellent way is to be the one who takes God at his word because that is the loving thing to do with and for each other. Thirdly, love hopes all things. Similarly, what is it that it hopes, that love hopes? It is not pie-in-the-sky notions that things or people are easy. Look, people are messy. I am messy. You are messy. And it's going to get messy when we get into the room together. You know, you squeeze a tube of toothpaste, what comes out? toothpaste. Okay, what happens when you squeeze a sinner? Sin comes out. Okay, so what happens when you put a bunch of sinners in a room together? We're going to squeeze each other. It's going to happen. And everything about this love that Paul is describing for us, it is costly. It is difficult. And so hope is knowing that the Lord is assured us of certain things. And even though you don't currently have that thing, you know that the Lord's word is so certain that it is, is as if though you already have that thing. So love hopes, like it says in Philippians 1, 6, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. And I hope that that is true in me, and I can hope that that is true in you too. Love hopes that the processes that God has given us will result in what he said they would. Listen to Ephesians 4, 15 to 16. Rather, speaking the truth in love, process, it's what you do, result, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly. Here it is makes the body grow so it builds itself up in love. Process, speak the truth in love. Result, it'll grow up in love. So we hope. We take God at his word that that's a certainty if I am committed to speaking the truth of the gospel into your life and you're doing that with me, that we together will build up into love. Love hopes that as rocky as it may get in our relationships with one another, that there will be a day that all sin is eradicated from us and we will live in perfect peace. And we set our eyes on that thing, that we are going to get there one day. Perfect reconciliation, perfect harmony. And so, we can endure now. Which is perhaps why Paul ends with this, that love endures all things. Love endures all things. In light of those other things, the bearing, the believing, and the hoping, then the inevitable conclusion is that love will endure and be enduring. 
The greatest gift we can give to the church to build up the body is a love that endures with one another. In Disciple Makers, the ministry I work for, one of our core values is unity. It's one of the things we rally around. In the description of that core value, it starts like this. Real unity is hard work. Amen. It comes from adopting a servant's attitude and speaking the truth in love. Listen, there's no magic pill that we could take that's just going to make this easy. It is going to require endurance. The more excellent way is committing to not quit. Listen, I'll be real with you guys. We, we've been in the area now for, what, like nine or almost ten years. Um, when we first moved into the area here, I was shocked by how normal it is in this area to church hop. Um, and now, I'm sure that goes on elsewhere, but, but yeah, at least how visible it was here. That is so normal for people when, when church got disruptive to, to pack up and move. And to say, this flavor's not doing it for me anymore, or, you know, whatever, and, and to go and to move. So love endures all things. Now, a, a caveat here. You could say, hey, Brian, you moved. You guys moved from a different church in the area here. I just want you to know, so you know I'm not a hypocrite in talking about this. We actually had conversations with all of the elders of our former church, and they gave us our ble- their blessing to make the move over here. Because, see, we were committed because of this to not just ghost the church when things got hard, but to actually have multiple conversations and appeal and even then to ask permission. Because love endures all things. That means, friends, that we have to be willing to put in the hard work of making it work. Of listening, of being vulnerable and honest in the midst of conflict, of being gracious and forgiving, of being long-suffering, of giving people the benefit of the doubt and intentionally choosing to not believe the worst interpretation, even if that's our knee-jerk reaction, of listening yet again and asking questions and even at times taking criticism. It takes being, what, what is it? It takes being patient and kind. It, it takes refusing to envy or boast. It takes humility and, and refusing to be rude with each other. It takes not insisting on our own way. But counting others is more important than ourselves, looking not to our own interests, but also their interests. It takes having a spine and therefore not being easily irritated. It takes forgiving and therefore not holding a record of wrongs over each other's heads. It does not rejoice in others' wrongdoing, but it rejoices with the truth. Friends, it bears all things, it believes all things, it hopes all things, it endures all things. So I pose the question to you. We can't just be hearers of the word. We've got to be doers. And this is a very do passage, isn't it? So what's one step that you can take to embrace those callings? I can't suppose in a list like this that I can guess where the Holy Spirit hits you individually, but what's one step that you can take, even if it's a baby step, to move into this description of love this gifting for the sake of the growth of the body of Christ. Listen, I don't expect perfection tomorrow, and you shouldn't expect perfection tomorrow, and the Lord is long-suffering and does not expect perfection tomorrow. But brothers and sisters, what is one step 
of repentance and growth that you can take this week to grow in your love of God uh, or your love of the people of God. So love is active in the church. The last thing is this, and we're going to conclude with it quickly. Love is is eternal for the church. So why should we embrace all this? Why should we embrace all this? Look at verse 8 to the end of the chapter. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. Those are those higher gifts he was talking about. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. See, why should we press into these things? Well, love never ends. All of those other higher gifts are simply in place because we can't see God face to face yet. Why am I up here opening God's word to you? Because you can't see God face to face yet. Pastor Bo will not have a job in the resurrection. He'll get a new one. But you understand all ministry and missions, it's not necessary at that point because we only know in part now and we're sort of prophesying, proclaiming in part now, but when the perfect comes, the partial's gone. We don't need it anymore. We see in a mirror dimly now, but there's going to be a day when it's all revealed. See, all of those higher gifts for the sake of the building up of the body of Christ are not going to be necessary when we are dwelling with Christ. Not love. That one goes on. That gifting is eternal, and that is going to go into the resurrection. So if you want to grow in a gifting, If you want to grow in how you can bless this church, sure, practice the guitar, read commentaries, and learn how to explain and teach and work so that you have something to give and, you know, take care of maintenance around the church. Those are awesome. But listen, focus on this one. How can you love these people? How can you love these people? Because God first loved us. Listen to how Paul finishes it. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully. Listen to this. Even as I have been fully known. Do you hear that God loves us? And Paul understands that that means that God knows us intimately and has welcomed us into a relationship with one another. Friends, because God has resolved our conflict with him through the blood of Christ and brought us in, friends, because he has loved us, may we be a church marked by love for one another. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you have loved us, and certainly it is nothing that we have earned or deserve. God, there is nothing particularly lovely in us. It is all of grace that you would save us. And Father, I pray that as a church where we sort of lather, rinse, and repeat the gospel over and over and over again here, God, would that sink so deeply in us that it moves outward that we need to not just believe the gospel but live in light of the gospel. And God, would that particularly be marked by by love for one another? And the love that, that Paul has described for us here, that you have described to us, we ask for your help, Father. So I pray for myself and my friends in the room here, God, if there are ways that we need to be convicted of failing to do this, would you do that? God, would you just quiet our hearts and lead us to repentance and and to growth? 
God, thank you that there is grace and that your, your grace is not just a salva- sal- uh, saving grace, but, but it's also a sanctifying grace, God. So we ask that you would do this, God, that our church would be unified, and therefore it, it would last generations here. God, we thank you for this, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.